Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, The Republic of Nature, an environmental history of the United States, Mark Fiji reframes American history based on the simple but radical premise that nothing in the nation's past can be considered apart from the natural circumstances in which it occurred. Among the historical moments he revisits under this new framework, a revolutionary nation arises from its environment and struggles to reconcile the diversity of its people with the claim that nature is the source of liberty. Abraham Lincoln, an unlettered citizen from the countryside, steers the Union through a moment of extreme peril, guided by his vision of nature's capacity for improvement. And in Topeka, Kansas, transformations of land and life prompt a lawsuit that culminates in Brown versus the Board of Education. Mark Vigie also treats witches, so-called, in 17th century colonial America, and the atom bomb. And by focusing on materials and processes intrinsic to all things, and by highlighting the nature of the United States, he seeks to recover the forgotten and overlooked ground in which so much history has unfolded. Mark Fiji is professor of history at Colorado State University. He's Charles Red Center for Western Studies author for 2013 Utah Humanities Book Festival. He'll be appearing at the State Archives in Utah in Salt Lake City on Thursday at noon as part of the Utah State Archives Month. And we'll discuss his work that evening, 7 o'clock in the Salt Lake Public Library. Mark Fiji, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could uh, jump right in to uh, we'll we'll loop back and uh, discuss the genesis of the book but uh your first chapter has to do with uh witches in Massachusetts 1690s. I wonder if I could have you read uh, from page 24. 24 from, okay. the, from the book just the starting the first full paragraph there something frightening and then just the the, the two paragraphs that comprise the majority of the page there. <clears throat> okay. Something frightening was happening in Andover, and it threatened the social and agricultural order that the abbots, their neighbors, and other English colonists had labored mightily to create and uphold. Some 70 years before, in 1620, the first of them had arrived on New England's rocky shore, intent on remaking the land and themselves. They would transform a savage environment into a stable, wealthy landscape of churches, solid homes, fertile fields, and pastures filled with lowing cattle. In the process, they would purify themselves and create tight-knit communities in which each person knew his or her place and obeyed God's will. It was their special mission, an errand into the wilderness, as one of their ministers called it, the success of which would ensure their redemption and the world's. But building and maintaining an orderly society and landscape would be more easily imagined than achieved. The very nature of the place, including the nature of the colonists' bodies, would prove too unstable for them to realize the control and security they desired. Striving for God's grace, they and their descendants, the abbots and many others, would know sores, pus, pain, strange births, dead cattle, paralyzing fear, and worse. Is that good? That's Yeah, that's good. Uh, and okay. uh, you, you're telling the story of Benjamin Abbott and his neighbors. Benjamin Abbott... I guess wakes up one morning with uh, the problem in his foot that expands over his body. He becomes a very sick man, and, he, and his cattle start dying in strange manners. Yes, yeah, and that's sort of the entry into that chapter, um, which then goes on to um, try to unpack um, Puritan civilization in the 17th century and talk about how um, the lives of those people were often disrupted by all kinds of um, environmental disturbances, you know, ranging from illness um, to drought, um, storms, and so forth, and how oftentimes um, these things seem to be um, not 
simply a sign of, of an upset in the natural order, but also um, evidence of, of a malign influence, a supernatural malign influence in their lives. So the, the Puritans, uh, as I understand it from your book, uh, they had a belief in, in magic, right? The supernatural, and this was frowned upon by by the elders. But yeah, uh, so yeah. that the mind would naturally go to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's some explanation in the supernatural. And in this case, this particular case, it turned to a, a cantankerous neighbor, a Martha Carrier. Yes, yeah. And and it's very interesting um, uh, how the the Puritans, like uh, many English, um, they didn't dismiss um, supernatural forces in the world. And of course, they they did believe in God. They believed that um, God was the all powerful supernatural force. But they also believed that uh, the powers of the American Indians, for example, were very real, um, but oftentimes were um, malign. Um, uh, they also believed, uh, kind of on a folk level. Um, that they could um, influence the material world, the, phys- the physical world, um, through through various kinds of, you know, rituals and incantations and so forth. Um, and so, in this one case, um, the community um, in in Andover um, began to focus its concern about things going on in the town on one Martha Carrier. Um, kind of a, a person who had already been ostracized and was marginal in some ways to the community. And she's, I guess she had a child out of wedlock. That was a strike against her. She was um, kind of lower class and, and uh, I guess, uh, had disputes with her neighbors as well. And all of this was kind of a, as a framework for what happened. She was uh, you know, convicted, I think, as a witch and, and executed. Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, she was kind of a, a socially marginal person and probably in, in, a, in a certain sort of way, uh, materially, economically, environmentally marginal too. you know, a poorer person in that in that community. And of course, your point is, uh, and I'll read just a paragraph here, the story of Martha Carrier, you write, however, suggests that there was a side to this iconic American event, you're talking about the, the witches and such, that scholars and popular audiences alike have largely overlooked. Witchcraft was a function of the colonists' experience of bodies, disease, land, and other biophysical things generally known as nature. Maybe yeah. you could expand that. Well, it's it's interesting. I think in our our culture, um, we often draw a distinction between people and nature. You know, man and nature. Um, famous title by uh, um, one of the first environmental historians, George Perkins Marsh. Um, title of his book published in 1864. And I think there always is this sense that. Um, you know, people in nature are two distinct different realms, and it's entirely legitimate to look at them that way. But if you start focusing on the human body as the subject of history, um, as a uh, organically evolved site at which things get played out, um, you know, uh, an, uh, an organism to, uh, to which things happen, um, it's much harder to draw that distinction. It's much harder to draw that separation. And as I read about the Puritans and as I read about witchcraft, it really struck me how so much of the stories often revolved around things that were happening to people's bodies, um, the ways that um, authorities um, uh, uh, interpreted uh, things that were going on with people's bodies, whether they're sicknesses or um, whether it's women who seem to be uh, doing things um, not in keeping with um, what women should be doing at their stage in the life course and so forth. Um, so again, I think that's that was the prompt for that was that that insight that many environmental historians have that it's difficult to draw an absolute line between 
um, the human body and then the environment through which it moves, um, which it ingests, um, into which it expels things, and so forth. Um, so really the body becomes a kind of uh, continuation of the landscape and the world that, that in otherwise contains it. Um, and the Puritans, it's a very, I guess, American impulse, uh, maybe human impulse. They were supposed to be bringing order to this wilderness, right? That was a religious quest and, uh, and a societal quest, and that, that was their framework. Yes. Um, you know, coming to the New World, um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, to, to, find, to establish an order and to uh, rescue the larger world, um, to um, create a, a new civilization that would prove um, godly and would rescue uh, you know, all human beings um, from the corruptions that were going on elsewhere. Um, so it's a very idealistic uh, kind of goal. Um, and they come to this environment, um, this new place, this new world, um, and then they seek to transform it um, into the image of the ideal that they have. And, of course, that's a very difficult thing for any, any society. In many ways, these are utopianists. They, they, have, they have very high ideals, um, and it's difficult to reshape the material world um, into an image of the model that you've got in your head. Um, basic problem of, of any utopian society. Um, and of course, when things start to go wrong, um, when disruptions occur, when people get sick, when the cattle die, when the crops fail, um, what's the reason for that? Um, and that's when mind, the minds, in some of their minds, they would then begin to think, well, this is the influence of Satan. Um, mm. He's infiltrated our community um, and begun to corrupt it. This is a theme you see, I think, throughout American history, that uh, it's kind of man versus nature, isn't it? And that nature, at least in in their minds, in in the mental landscape, is is out there and and needs to be fixed. Yeah, nature is out there and and needs to be fixed. Um, There's a larger quest. Um, I think you're making a good point. There's a larger quest to um, transform the landscape into almost a kind of second creation, um, you know, something new and better than what was there originally, and in the process, um, completely fulfill human potential. Um, I think that uh, that approach isn't just characteristic of the Puritans, it's characteristic of other Americans as well, um, but a powerful theme. Mark Fiji is my guest. He is uh, author of a new book, The Republic of Nature, an Environmental History of the United States. He is coming to Utah on Thursday... It'll be at the State Archives in Salt Lake City at noon as part of Utah State Archives Month. And we'll discuss his work that evening, Thursday evening, 7 p.m. at the Salt Lake Public Library. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. I wonder if we could uh, move ahead, uh, maybe a natural segue to Thomas Jefferson and, and Monticello. Okay. He made some interesting points. He uh, he he tried to blend. He, of course, Thomas Jefferson famous for uh, for for a particular view of nature and that nature's effects, as he hoped on on the idealized American. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about Monticello. He he put this on the top of a mountain. He had to carve away part of that top of the mountain to to make Monticello. Yeah, um, I think. Uh you know, as Mount Vernon has come to stand for Washington, so Monticello has come to stand for Jefferson. 
and in many ways it's the it's the uh, you know one of the most basic expressions of how he saw the world um, and his relationship to it, um, his place in it, and so forth, and all of his um, aspirations for himself and for society and for the United States, he tried to express through that building. Um, you know, Jefferson's well known for his things that he said and wrote and so forth. He's the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, but I think it's also true that he's the primary author of that house, and that house in its own way is a text. It's an expression of his mind and how he saw the world, um, how he saw nature, um, and how he saw his place in it. It's interesting that you developed this uh, in your last chapter on themes to be explored later. Um, Interesting difference between the the view of man, nature of man, and and nature uh, between Republicans and Federalists. Yes. um, One the Republicans much more kind of expansive, um, and and I think from a Jeffersonian perspective, um, really looking westward and imagining how um, the nation would unfold in that space, um, and the 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 West becomes this. Um, landscape that's going to rescue the republic from the kinds of uh, problems that earlier republics had encountered uh, by expanding westward through space. Um, the, uh, the, United, the country would forestall its inevitable decay through time. So it does become a kind of um, um, cure-all for, for potential problems. Um, you, you know, Jefferson even believed that somehow out there, um, slavery would diffuse and go away. So we had this diffusionist theory about slavery. Um, and they have a kind of um, uh, expansive notion of, of the people, um, the people um, uh, uh, going out into that uh, country. And then they build a, a, a politics on that. And in certain ways, the Federalists were thinking in terms of an older world of more close-knit communities, um, confined, um, in which there were uh, prominent, well-respected people who would naturally, in their view, um, become the leaders. Um, and, and it was a view that um, was not as, I think, uh, consistent with the reality of the United States, um, a, a new nation um, with a, a very broad land base that was going to get even bigger. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting um, uh, environmental history angle on the ideologies of those two parties. And perhaps uh, you say the, the Federalist view perhaps didn't match up. Maybe that's why the Federalist Party disappeared over time. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's hard to um, it's hard for politicians to establish themselves as socially superior when it's so easy for someone to leave, to acquire land to the West, um, to try and get some wealth. Um, and become perhaps on par with the Federalist leaders who were you know, left behind. We're talking with Mark Fiji. The book is A Republic of Nature. Um, we're going to talk about monuments. Uh, he begins his book with a trip to the Lincoln Memorial. On the cover of the book is a picture of Mount Rushmore. And what that says about the environmental history of the United States, we'll talk about the Civil War, um, how nature shaped the outcome of that war and also the beginnings of that war, the, the necessity for it. We'll talk about the atom bomb and Brown versus the Board of Education. I'm interested to hear how Mark Fiji um, takes us to Topeka, Kansas, and the color line. All of that uh, coming uh, in the next part of the program following a brief break. 
Utah Public Radio's fall membership drive gets underway October 3rd. Your contribution now will help in a special way. Rocky Mountain Power will contribute $5,000 to UPR if we meet our membership goal of $80,000 by October 12th. Become a member or renew your financial support at upr.org. Click on Support the Station. Thank you. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. Dr. Pastor will give a free presentation titled Three Simple Steps to Ultimate Health on Friday, October 18th at Moab Regional Hospital. His address will be followed by a reception. Space is limited, so go to upr.org for registration information. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Moab and Logan. You can find out more about those at upr.org. And Zorba Pastor's visit in Moab is sponsored by USU Moab and Moab Regional Hospital. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening today. I'm Tom Williams at Access Utah. Talking about the book, The Republic of Nature, An Environmental History of the United States. The author is Mark Fiji, who's professor of history at Colorado State University. He'll be appearing at the State Archives on Thursday at noon as part of Utah State Archives Month. And we'll discuss his work that evening, Thursday evening, 7 p.m. at the Salt Lake Public Library as part of Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. And uh, we're talking about the Republic of Nature, in which uh, Mark Fiji reframes American history based on the premise that nothing in the nation's past can be considered apart from the natural circumstances in which it occurred. And Mark Fiji, apparently, uh, this idea, this insight, breakthrough came in class interaction with your students? It did, yeah. And I think I'd been thinking these things all along. I think, you know, even when I was a student myself, I, I would wonder, um, well, are there things that um, don't usually get written about as environmental history that in fact have environmental histories? But it was one day in class or after class and a couple of my students, good students, came up to me and said, you say this is American history. My class is American environmental history. And they said, you say this is American history. And I said, that's right. And they said, well, if it's American history, how come we're not studying? And the two topics they mentioned were the American Revolution and the Civil War. Um, and I, I talked to them about how environmental history, if one focuses on nature and um, uh, biophysical things, um, a different kind of story of American history emerges. Um, but I really had to take seriously what they said. And, and I thought, well, if, if, if environmental history is about the role and place of nature in human life through time, which is a, a kind of nutshell definition of it, um, why not? see what the Civil War might look like as environmental history. And I just began to ponder, well, so climate, weather, crops, uh, animals, these things didn't influence the Civil War? I wondered, and I began to ask questions, and that was really the, the one thing that I think crystallized my determination to go forward and write this book. But I have to credit those two students. I'm sorry I don't remember their names. They were great. They really challenged me. <laughs> um, um, but that's what started it. Let's talk about the Civil War. I think sure. a lot of people have have some something of an understanding, uh, you know, about the the, the natural, the, at least the resource um, 
uh, implications, uh, the beginnings of the of the fracture of the North and South. Maybe we could talk a bit about that, uh, you know, why the North and South went in such different ways. Well, I think a standard explanation, you know, centers uh, on, on um, the West um, and the conflict between the two sections um, over whether the West would have slavery or not. Um, so right there, I think there's, they're projecting their ideas upon that Western landscape, um, and, and they want certain things for it. Each side wants certain things for it. So I think in many ways right there, the, the Civil War has an environmental genesis. Um, it, it's born um, uh, very much out of this uh, struggle over over the fate of the West, over the fate of the soils out there, and, and what kind of society would be implanted um, upon them. Um, so, um, and uh, I think you know even even back the the landscape in which they're you know which they're trying to make a living, the resources were different, and so that uh, you know that prompted a different trajectory. Yeah, I mean they're profoundly it, it, the United States at that time was profoundly agricultural, of course, um, and how people imagined themselves and what they imagined the country becoming was really founded upon that in many ways. Um, the beginnings of industrialization were happening, um, especially in the north. There were many shopkeepers and small manufacturers and so forth, but still it was primarily an agricultural republic, and so they imagined the West as the place where you know, their particular kind of agriculture would develop. Um, and I think that's uh, one of the things that, um, you know, gives the, 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 the conflict um, such force is because their very identities and their futures, as they imagined them, were wrapped up in, that, in those places. So in a lot of ways, you could say that they have land ideologies. Um, North and South were evolving what might be called land ideologies um, about, about the West. Of course, uh, baked into the you know the, the founding documents, the founding ideals of America, is this claim you talk about that nature is the source of liberty, and of course, parallel to that, you have slavery. Yes, parallel to that, you have slavery, and that's a very interesting story. Um, I think it runs you know through uh, uh, many of the chapters in the book. Um, of course, the American Revolution, in many ways, is founded on the idea of natural rights. Um, the idea that people come into the world um, with a certain set of freedoms inherent in their very bodies. Um, and then instantly there's a conflict between that claim and a good portion of American society's commitment to slavery. Um, and that it starts a, a, a conflict that um, plays itself out um, through the 19th century. Um, uh, one of the things that um, many uh, Southern pro-slavery proponents did um, was that they then had to argue that um, a cert this certain group of Americans, um, these these laborers, were something less than they were. Um, they were something less than fully human in a conventional sense, um, fully less than uh, 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 being uh, uh, the kind of person, the kind of human um, who could become a citizen. Um, so that's one of the consequences of a, of a natural rights revolution um, was the need to come up with pseudoscientific um, judgments about a, a group of people. Um, so that runs through the, the book, um, runs through various chapters. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, you write, an unlettered citizen from the countryside, he has a, a kind of optimism. We think of him as, uh, you know, having depressions and such, but uh, you have to have somewhat of an optimistic view to, to believe that the nation somehow can come through this. And uh, he had a vision of nature's capacity for improvement, apparently? Yes. Um, uh, 
uh, when I first envisioned the book, I wasn't going to write about Lincoln, um, but um, he's a very compelling figure. Um, uh, and I think there's a reason why so many biographies are written about him, um, because really when people write those biographies, they're writing about um, the history of the United States. I mean, he, he encapsulates, he embodies so much of the struggles of the country. He was a providentialist, um, and he believed that there was something larger than humanity that was um, ultimately controlling the outcome of events. Um, but at the same time, he was a guy who had profound hope. Um, and, and a lot of his uh, thought, as I develop it in the, in the chapter, Nature's Nobleman, centered on this idea of improvement. And I think today we often have a kind of cynical uh, view of improvement. You know, we, we speak of it and we put it in scare quotes and, and things like that. And, and improvement has come to be mean, you know, we know better than nature and the bulldozers are going to come out and, you know, knock down the forest and put up the shopping mall and so forth. That's improvement. Or we're going to build the highway, etc. But I think improvement for Lincoln had a little bit different meaning. Um, he believed that um, uh, um, nature had the uh, uh, potential. Um, there's a potential within nature um, uh, that that uh, could be f fulfilled um, if uh, uh, people did the right thing. Um, there's, a, there's an inherent capacity in, in nature to nurture and sustain human life and a Republican form of government, small r Republican form of government. Um, and I think that's what he meant by improvement. Um, there was a potential that if people could see it, they could work within nature um, and, and they could um, develop it um, in ways consistent with it um, and thereby fully realizing human potential and the, the capacity of a republic such as the United States to flourish. It's a very powerful idea, yeah. um, very interesting idea. These, uh, I was just thinking that this idea of du dueling ideas of development, uh, <laughs> that's a very current uh, debate battle. You, you know, you, you, could, you could pick up any newspaper and and you'd see these themes played out today. Yeah, I think so. You know, and now we can look back on uh, centuries of of uh, European or Europe, European American settlement of North America. Um, we can look back on a a century more of industrialized um, landscape transformations in the country, and it's not as easy for us to be as positive and hopeful about improvement. Um, but if we rewind the tape, so to speak, and go back to Lincoln's time and imagine a much smaller um, population, um, a largely agricultural nation, um, a nation that still saw itself as, as very much um, in, a, in a process of development. Um, I think from that perspective, if we set aside um, the things that we know and our own feelings and try to imagine ourselves in, in, in Lincoln's world, um, in his shoes, so to speak, I think then um, uh, the view of improvement becomes a little bit different. Mm. You know? and, and it's true, you can draw a line, I think, from the sorts of improvement that Lincoln was talking about to um, technology and things today that, um, uh, you know, the morality of which is, I think, for us more clouded. Um, we're more ambivalent about them. But um, if, if we recognize that, you know, Lincoln and people of that time um, didn't know the future, um, we can go back and try to see the world as they saw it. And, and there, um, improvement is something um, really powerful. Um, I think it's a really important part of, of um, an American way of seeing things. Mm. You have a chapter on Gettysburg, and this uh, you you uh, you concert on Gettysburg, and then uh, 
talk about the entire Civil War. We talked a little bit about that. But yeah. uh, here, here's, uh, you know, a, an effect of, of nature, you know, concrete nature, not the idea of nature, ha- has an actual effect on the outcome of, a, you know, of, of the key battle of the war. Yes. Yeah, and that was a really interesting um, chapter to write. Um, you know, I tried to pick a series of iconic events on which to center the book, and and I think even today many Civil War historians will will say that um, even if just in symbolic terms, Gettysburg is the pivotal battle. Um, they argue about it, but um, it has enough significance in American history that um, I thought it would be really interesting to look at. Um, so I began to to um, read up on Gettysburg and the Civil War and go through primary sources. And I think there's uh, compelling evidence that um, I'd say the primary reason that um, General Robert E. Lee um, leads the Army of Northern Virginia into Pennsylvania um, is on a hunt for resources, for supplies. Um, Virginia had been devastated by the fighting, its agricultural systems disrupted, um, so right there, you could say there is a good. De- the war had a good deal of environmental devastation on the landscape, but there are other things going on too. Um, uh, 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 epidemics had swept through um, the horse herds um, and depleted um, the supply of, of southern horses. Um, uh, they were running out of food and so forth. So in his mind, the logical thing was to go to the place where all of that stuff was, and um, go up to Pennsylvania, which um, uh, was popularly known as the best poor man's country, uh, because it was so fertile, um, uh, because agriculture did so well there. Um, And that sort of is the beginning of the campaign, the Gettysburg campaign, as they they, uh, um, head north. And historians have uncovered some, I think, rather um, astonishing figures. Um, One has... Um, estimated the um, the thousands of head of animals um, that the Army of Northern Virginia captured and sent back down into Virginia. Um, uh, tens of thousands of cattle, of sheep, um, 20,000 horses and mules, um, thousands of hogs, and so forth. Um, so I, I think that's powerful evidence that um, the Army of Northern Virginia and the, the Confederacy was under um, real severe resource constraints, um, in part simply because of the physical devastation of the fighting, um, but also because of things like um, droughts um, and because of things like uh, epidemics <clears throat> um, that carried away a lot of their animals. I wonder if I could have you read another passage. This is a very powerful. This is the aftermath of the battle. Sometimes, okay. you know, we don't we don't focus on this as much, do we? Uh, we, we read about the tactics and strategies and the, the outcome of the battle, but here's the aftermath and citizens uh, coming out to to, to view the the carnage. Uh, this is on page two nineteen. Okay. And uh, the subheading: one vast hideous charnel house. By the way, what's a charnel house? Well, it's a, a house of the dead. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, and, yeah, and and uh, you know, um, it this it, this was a powerful uh, uh, thing to write for me, um, you know, and, and most of these, uh, virtually all the chapters, I went to the places where the events unfolded, um, and I think Gettysburg, um, like the Lincoln Memorial, which opens the book, is. Um, uh, there are reasons why people see so much in it, um, why it's so powerful to them. 
Um, and I did, I do include this story in the book of, uh, you know, two people who went into the park and were instantly moved by it. And they, they instantly pulled over by the side of the road and began, began to pray for the dead people and their families. It has that effect on a person. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's, a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an important part of it, I think. Uh, so if you could read, uh, the, the, the last paragraph on that page and then over the page, the first full paragraph. Okay. On the next page. Sure. As the Army of Northern Virginia headed south and the Army of the Potomac pursued it, civilians emerged from their hiding places and walked onto the battlefield. What they found, what they experienced, horrified them and brought tears to their eyes. No longer militarily important, these few square miles of green Pennsylvania countryside had become a nightmare of destruction and death, a macabre landscape that seemed, as one man put it, like one vast, hideous charnel house. There, in all its terrible finality, was the physical aftermath of the two armies' cataclysmic struggle to harness nature in the service of military gain. Virtually every spot, it seemed, contained some evidence of profound turmoil. Shattered and fallen trees, torn earth, trampled crops, bullet-riddled buildings, collapsed and burnt fences, and blasted wagons testified to the ferocity and destructiveness of the conflict. So, too, did the abandoned equipment that lay all about. Rifles, cartridge boxes, sabers, hats, coats, blankets, haversacks, canteens. Some of the remains offered powerful evidence of the resource scarcity scarcity that had driven the Army of Northern Virginia into Pennsylvania. The feet of some Confederate dead, if not bare, wore shoes made of canvas. Rebel haversacks contained mutton, veal, lard, crocks of butter, preserves and other delicacies, bonnets, baby shoes, socks, shirts, gaiters, writing paper and envelopes, an incredible array of Pennsylvania loot. Perhaps the sorriest of the remnants were the letters from home and the pictures of loved ones, evidence of the human anguish that Gettysburg would yield. Yeah, that's, that's quite the picture. And then you go on to, uh, to get even more graphic. It's, <laughs> but it's yeah. it's just it's just amazing. But then later in that section, um, you write, although profound destruction marked Gettysburg battlefield, in time it would heal. You, there's a man who goes in the summer of that same year, and and uh, you know the land is healing. The the uh, you know crops are coming up. Yes, yes, and 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 he talks about um, the these. Uh, uh, berries um, that a girl is selling, um, and he sees this as evidence of regeneration, of rebirth. Um, and in one sense, you could say that's symbolic. You know, the seasons turn, and spring comes back, and, and things grow again. Um, but, you know, what's really remarkable, and I think I cite the figure, there's an estimate of the, the amount of um, organic material in the form of horses and other flesh that are left behind on the battlefield. And, you know, um, definitely... Um, nutrients went into that soil, went into that concentrated area. So, you know, maybe his statement, his observation is more than just symbolic. Hmm. In, in one sense, uh, you'd see that at horrible, furious destruction. And then, you know, over time, the land, uh, you know, the land goes back to, to what it was. Man is kind of small in scale. Kind of a segue here to you. You, you write about going to the Lincoln Memorial. Yes, and as you and and it's a monument, purposeful, uh, purposely huge in scale, and so as, as a human, as you walk up the steps, you you feel, I guess, diminished in in comparison. Yes. Yeah, and I I think the Lincoln Memorial is uh you know it's another one of those powerful sites, and I think there are very few people who go there and can't be moved by it in some way. 
um, by its monumentalism, by its majesty, by Lincoln's words inscribed inside and so forth. And so much of um, how Americans um, want to imagine themselves, um, what they want the country to be, their aspirations as a people, as a nation, I think are literally embedded um, in that building. And it's also the site of protest demonstrations of all sorts. Um, it's the place where Americans go to, um, in many ways, work out their problems. Um, and I've, it's my favorite site in Washington, D.C. I've been there many times. Um, and I thought, wow, if this is a book that, that looks at iconic moments in American history, iconic sites and moments and events, um, maybe that would be a great way of, in effect, having the reader walk with me up those steps into the Lincoln Memorial um, and get those feelings. Um, and then with me, try to begin imagining how uh, this memorial itself is made up of things dr drawn from, extracted from the American landscape. The marble from Colorado, for example, um, other pieces of marble from Georgia, um, how the whole site is transformed out of a low, boggy, swampy area, um, how they create this magnificent monument literally out of the pieces of the American landscape. Um, so it's the crystallization of so many things, of ideas, um, but also parts of nature. Yeah, you, you, uh, there's, you, you definitely do create the, the magic of, of going there and, and what the creators of Lincoln Memorial, I'm sure, wanted people to feel. Then you say, as, as you maybe come out, the magic fades, you start thinking about how it was created. Yeah, so there you are, and you go through it, and this literally has been my experience. You go through it, and you're moved by it. Um, you go touch those marble columns. Um, you're mesmerized by the words. Um, um, sometimes even when you walk in there, you know, people walk in, and it's kind of dark in there, and there's, there's a little bit of a hush that comes over people as they go in there. But eventually, um, as any tourist will, um, you start feeling pretty exhausted, sweaty and tired. I almost always go to Washington, D.C. in the middle of the summer, and it's really hot and humid there. And you go out, and you sit down, and you start looking at that marble, and you think, where does this come from? Um, you sit down in that marble, and you see the cracks, and there's this... Um, kind of green uh, mold growing in the cracks. And if you're an environmentalist historian like me, you think, ah, what does this mean? Um, this stuff is made out of nature. Um, where does all that come from? There's actually a story to that. Um, there's a story of how the Lincoln Memorial is built. Um, but partly it's because of the physical exhaustion of your body. There's that theme again um, that you begin to think these things. And isn't there a tension? You're, you're trying to, you're taking things out of nature you're building a monument to ideals, but in the end, perhaps your mind goes back to nature, and and this is this comes out of nature. Yeah, I think in the end, you know, we try to create things that, and I, maybe this goes back to your insight into the the Puritans. You know, that we try to create, um, we try we try to create in the physical world um, things drawn from our minds, um, and we want them to be perfect, almost in a utopian sense. Um, and I think they're, these ideas that we have are, are expressions of our aspirations as humans, um, and they're, they're very powerful, and we want to realize them. We want to bring them into being in this world, in the here and the now, in the landscape, in the soil, um, in our buildings, and so forth. Um, but ultimately, we are limited 
Um, we are creatures um, bound up in the processes of the planet. Um, although we can imagine otherworldly things, um, although we can imagine virtually anything, um, ultimately we are finite um, and we are captured within these bodies. Um, we, are, we are captured um, within the limits of, of the planet. Um, and I think it's that kind of tension that you can see at work there in, in the Lincoln Memorial. It's interesting. We were talking earlier about improvement, and uh, now we're talking about monuments. And my mind went to our our national parks yeah. and to wilderness that we have preserved. And in a way, um, you know, this becomes nature as a monument to nature. Yes, nature is a monument to nature, and that's a really good way of putting it. And I think there's a way in which you can see the national parks as aspirational landscapes. I think that's one reason why they're they're often so conflicted. You know, when people are uh, when the National Park Service introduces wolves in Yellowstone, and there's opposition to that, or on the other hand, great celebration of it. Um, there are natural, non-human natural elements to it that the National Park Service is. Um, uh, um, dealing with. But at the same time, even the supposedly natural parks like Yellowstone or out here in Colorado, um, Rocky Mountain National Park, Yosemite, whatever, even those those seemingly natural parks also, in effect, are like shrines. Um, they're symbols um, to what Americans um, want to imagine themselves to be. And I think that's one reason why they're so powerful. I mean, arguably, they're so beautiful and they have such wondrous things on them. Um, but our very identity as a nation is wrapped up in those parks and those landscapes and how we treat them. Mark Fiji is my guest. He's a professor of history at Colorado State University, and he's the Charles Red Center for Western Studies author for the 2013 Utah Humanities Book Festival, and he'll appear at the State Archives in Salt Lake City on Thursday at noon as a part of the Utah State Archives Month. He'll discuss his work Thursday evening at 7 at the Salt Lake Public Library. The book is The Republic of Nature, an Environmental History of the United States. Mark Fiji says that nothing in the nation's past can be considered apart from the natural circumstances in which it occurred. Coming up, I'm uh, going to uh, lead us to a discussion of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, Mark Fiji, uh, we're going to break, but I, 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 you know, some of these things I thought as I before I read the book, I was thinking, yeah, I can, I can kind of see how he'll uh, get at this. But uh, Brown versus Board of Education, I, I was very interested to see how you're going to bring nature into that. And, and you successfully did. The color line, Topeka, Kansas. We'll get into that following break. Begin Utah Public Radio's fall membership campaign by becoming a sustaining member or adding a financial gift. Rocky Mountain Power is providing added incentive. They'll contribute $5,000 if we meet our goal of $80,000 by October 12th. Your contribution now at upr.org will be counted, and next year your membership will renew automatically, so we won't have to remind you. Make a difference at upr.org. Click on Support This Station. Thank you. Have you ever heard an idea that changed the way you look at the world? Everything we think we've we had feel, to believe in impossible things. Infinite possibility in that sense of potential. And, I realize and we've had to refuse persist. to fear failure. You've got to persist to fail. You can contemplate the meaning of infinity. I'm Guy Raz. Join me each week for ideas worth spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Coming to Utah Public Radio Mondays at. You're listening to Access Utah. A few minutes left with Mark Fiji. His book is Republic of Nature, 
and he's coming to Utah, part of the 2013 Utah Humanities Book Festival. He'll be at the State Archives on Thursday at noon as part of the Utah State Archives Month, and we'll discuss his work that evening, Thursday evening, 7 o'clock, in the Salt Lake City Public Library. And uh, those appearances uh, open to the public. Mark Fiji is a professor of history at Colorado State University. The book is The Republic of Nature and Environmental History of the United States. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your chapter on uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. You talk about the color line in Topeka, Kansas. Of course, this is the the, the site uh, from which this this landmark case comes to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that um, the the idea there was to look at what happens to the so-called color line um, when uh, a group of people try to overcome it. And, of course, um, Brown v. Board of Education is an iconic moment in American civil rights and legal history. Um, and for me, as I thought about this, um, I came to believe that the color line is not simply a legal abstraction. Um, It's not simply a set of um, rules or conventions or customs or laws that keep people separate and a group subordinate. Um, It is actually a physical thing. Um, There's a way in which the color line serves to divide people environmentally. Um, It's a way of um, confining people, trying to limit them to um, particular places and deprive them of um, other resources that, that most people generally agree are necessary for someone to thrive. Um, and I think it's it's much easier to see the color line um, in a kind of environmental sense when, when you look at um, how it played out in places like the American South um, in the countryside. Um, so, for example, um, one of the really interesting things that environmental historians have uncovered is the ways that um, uh, 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 fish and game laws in the South, um, seasons on hunting and fishing and so forth. Um, these were done as much to control access to the resource as to protect the resource. And in many ways, those laws in Southern states were there to try to prevent the freed people and black people from getting food that they could use to sustain themselves. It was a way of further keeping them subordinate within a a plantation-style economy. Um, And so there you can see the color line having very real environmental dimensions in a conventional sense. Um, But if you follow that color line through the landscape into cities, um, is there some magic point at which it stops becoming environmental? And if you think that the the human body um, is part of environmental history, um, think of the color line depriving people of access to drinking fountains um, or restrooms. Um, there you can see the color line having an environmental dimension. Um, it, it's uh, it's and then uh, so I, I followed this through the the landscape up to Topeka, Kansas. Um, and I think, um, you know, w- one of the real telling moments for me was when the Civil War is over and um, uh, Reconstruction is coming to an end and the freed people in the South are, are losing the protection of the United States Army um, and they start leaving. And this is the, the, the well-known famous exodus, the exodusters um, who uh, head north. Um, they, many of them head west to places like Kansas, um, um, trying to flee the South. Um, and some of the first exodusters who arrive in Topeka, um, the, 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 the population already there um, gets really worried about them. One of the, their fears are that these people are carrying diseases. Um, and the first steps are taken to isolate 
the African-American community away from everyone else. Um, and it's really interesting how um, there were yellow fever epidemics that um, evidently originated in Cuba um, in the late 19th century that swept up the Mississippi Valley, um, went along the rail lines and so forth. And very likely the people in Topeka um, were, were thinking of this. Um, and they thought, well, here comes this epidemic. Um, and they began to um, isolate African-Americans. And so right there, in my estimation, that's when a place like Topeka first starts to draw a color line. Um, and there is an environmental basis to it. Hmm. I wonder uh, if we could uh, close with the atom bomb. And, sure. Uh, have you read uh, uh, just one more passage? This is page okay. 315. Okay. And uh, subheading the, an organic necessity, just the... Uh, first two paragraphs there. You uh, you take us to Los Alamos, development of the atom bomb. And uh, then I think just before this, uh, this section, uh, the atom bomb has been dropped on Hiroshima. And in Los Alamos, there's celebration. This it, It's worked. It's helped to, in their minds, hasten the end of the war. Right. Okay. And this is 315? Uh, yes. An organic necessity. Okay. Yes. At the heart of every war lies deep moral ambiguity an inherently tragic condition that permanently alters the lives of the people ensnared in it. The atomic scientist's tragedy is clearest when viewed from the perspective of natural history, from the pine grove where Mitzi Teller and her friends, babies cradled in their arms, stopped the bulldozer. The men and women of Los Alamos were good, not evil, and they built the bombs not in spite of their goodness, but because of it, precisely because they were good. Precisely because they loved life, loved each other, loved children, loved mountains and atoms and pine trees, they found the means to create the esoteric knowledge without which the bomb could not have been born. The greatest killing machine in history was the product of all that was good, beautiful, and true, including the innocent curiosity that Rachel Carson called the sense of wonder. It was no mere accident, furthermore, that Germany failed to produce the bomb while Britain and the United States succeeded. Authoritarianism and racism crippled German science and stopped its bomb project cold. In contrast, the relative openness, toleration, and democracy of British and American science favored the Allied cause. Eccentrics, immigrants, Jews, and the unorthodox flourished at Los Alamos. General Groves might not have liked most of those people, but he put up with them, and some of them he actually admired. There can be no doubt, then, that the liberal conventions of Anglo-American science, including a love of nature, made the bomb likely. That little boy and fat man were so horribly destructive in no way detracted from this great truth. The ultimate atomic paradox and the ultimate atomic tragedy was that good and bad, delight and terror, required and produced one another. That is a very interesting paradox, isn't it? Good and bad, yes. delight and terror, required and produced one another. Yes. And I think that was a very difficult chapter for me to write, um, because as I watched these scientists, as I looked at them through the documents, as I read about them and, and tried to imagine their world, it became very clear to me that these people were much like many of us today, um, well-educated, um, and they had very similar views about nature. Nature was a source of delight and wonder. Um, and even very late, um, very late into the late 1930s, um, there was no promise that um, the kind of esoteric physics that these people were involved in would ever produce um, any kind of meaningful atomic power. Um, they, they, were, they were strange geeks on campus. 
Um, and uh, th- there was no guarantee that what they were doing was going to turn out a bomb. Um, and so what prompted them into it, in my view, um, was simply the sheer delight, the satisfaction they got from um, discovering a part of nature that um, most people can't imagine or go into, which is this super microscopic world of, of atoms. Um, but to get there, um, they often um, built upon their enthusiasm for other parts of the natural world, for hiking, for mountain climbing, and so forth. Um, there are people that uh, I think a lot of environmentalists would, would um, recognize today. And it's that, that very enthusiasm for nature and the feeling of wonder, that awe-inspiring feeling one gets on seeing something new and, and, and fantastic. Um, it's that kind of, of thing that enabled them to produce the knowledge that was absolutely necessary to building the bomb. And I think that's what makes it a tragedy. That's what makes it so, so uh, uh, tragic in the end. Um, is their very their very um, uh, love of nature um, is what gave them the power to build this bomb to destroy people's lives and landscapes. We'll have to leave it there out of time. Much more uh, covered in the book, of course. And uh, you can hear more about it uh, if you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area on uh, Thursday. Mark Fiji will appear at the State Archives at noon on Thursday as part of Utah State Archives Month. He'll discuss his work that evening at 7 p.m. in the Salt Lake Public Library as part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. Mark Fiji is a professor of history at Colorado State University. The book is The Republic of Nature and Environmental History of the United States. Mark Fiji, pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to look at a very uh, interesting, innovative program. Uh, some uh, th- uh, theater people are taking uh, theater arts into prisons and jails. The prisoners put on Shakespeare and the like. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Access Utah. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. And you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today. Coming up next at 10 o'clock, the TED Radio Hour, followed by a performance today, all on Utah Public Radio. It is now 10 o'clock.